Luke 17, verses 1 to 10. And he said to his disciples, Temptations are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and were cast into the sea than they should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he's come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you've done all that you were commanded, say we are unworthy servants. We've only done what was our duty. This is the word of the Lord. May he write his eternal truths upon our hearts for his glory, for our good, and for the building of his church. Please be seated. And let's pray again together. Almighty God, as we see this passage of Scripture, we see the things that you are commanding us to do. We see our duty. But Lord, we acknowledge that in and of ourselves, we are powerless to do even the first thing here. Lord, I pray through the power of your Holy Spirit that you help us to see our duty and help us, Lord, to walk in the fulfillment of our duties for the glory of your name. Lord, for those who are here this morning who are still as yet unbelievers, we pray, Father, that you would regenerate their hearts also through the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would grant, grant them repentance and faith. Lord, to see Christ for who he is, to see themselves where they are apart from him, but that they would turn to him and be saved. Lord, we are confident that your Spirit will accomplish <coughs> your work and your people and that your word will accomplish everything for which it's been sent. We pray this in the majestic and almighty name of Jesus Christ, the only Savior. Amen. Well, with the parable of the rich man and Lazarus that we saw at the end of, of Luke 16, Jesus has finished his scathing rebuke of the Pharisees. And now with the beginning of chapter 17, he turns to face the disciples and closes this teaching section with, uh, before continuing his journey on towards Jerusalem. Now, very likely, the Pharisees are still there. They're still present, hearing everything Jesus says. But silent and seething. As he teaches his disciples about three key components of discipleship. Vigilance against sin. The power of faith. And faithfulness in our duties. And all three of these run counter to the teaching of the Pharisee. And if we're honest, we need to acknowledge that all of these run counter to ourselves. All of these run counter to our corrupt 
human nature. Yet all three are necessary and evident in the life of the true believer. So how does that happen? How does someone go from being a corrupt sinner, embracing sin, walking in unbelief and rebelling against God and his moral law, to fighting sin, to to living by faith and to serving God faithfully? How does that happen? How do you get from there to there? How does someone go from being a sinner to being a saint? We heard about that glorious transformation as we we heard our call to worship this morning from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. Now, it might be helpful for you just as a a quick, we just go over this quickly, Ephesians chapter 2, 1 to 10, as as we we look at, at what is taking place in the heart as somebody goes from being a sinner to being a saint. Again, Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. Notice that we were all dead in, a, in the trespasses and sins. All of us. Not sick, not even mortally sick, but dead. And if that, if that chair can't breathe and can't drink and eat, how much less could we as dead sinners fight sin? And live by faith or walk faithfully. We cannot do, we could not do any of it because we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked. We were aligned with the world and the flesh and the devil against God. We were all by nature the children of wrath. That's verses one to three. But that great turning point is in verse four. But God. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead and our trespasses made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. Verses 4 to 5. And as if that is not glorious enough, there's more. Verses 6 and 7. God has raised us and seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. This is evidence of of the immeasurable riches and grace that we've received by faith in Christ Jesus. So then in verses uh, 7 to 9, we see that, that salvation is a gift of God's grace received by faith, not works. So there is no room for boasting. But verse 10, you are God's workmanship in Christ Jesus for the good works that he's prepared in advance that you should walk in. So there in Ephesians chapter 2, 1 to 10, you have that that glorious transformation of going from being a sinner to being a saint. It's all by faith, not by works, for the glory of God. You're transformed through the power of the Holy Spirit by faith alone, not by works. But even though you're not saved by works, you are saved for works. You're saved for that. You are God's workmanship in Christ Jesus for the good works he's prepared in advance for you to walk in. And this is paradoxical to, to our human thinking, isn't it? That, that, okay, hang on, I'm not saved by works, but I'm saved for works. It, it doesn't make sense that at first. Really, we're talking here about, about God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. And, and even though they don't fit together in our thinking, so the scriptures teach both, so we embrace both. 
Again, God is sovereign. He's in absolute control over all things. And yet we as, as moral agents have responsibility to walk according to, to God's moral will. That's really the, the bottom line of, of the message that Jesus is teaching his disciples here in Luke 17, 1-10. You've been saved by faith, not works, yet you've been saved for works. So then, how do you do those works? According to 17th century French playwright Pierre Corneille, he said famously, do your best and leave the rest to God. This quote was, was adapted by the popular word faith teacher, Joel Osteen, who said, when you do your part, God will do his part. Now these quotes might sound good on the surface, but, but the question is, do they actually reflect the biblical reality? There, there's a, a subtle twisting there that is actually making man sovereign and not God. It's really placing man on the throne and making God the servant to man. That, that first you have to do what you got to do, and then God's going to do what he's going to do. But again, how, how do God's sovereignty and human responsibility really relate when, when it comes to a Christian duty? How do we fight against sin? How do we exercise faith? How do we serve God faithfully? Again, these are the, the three duties that, that are before us in our passage this morning. In verses 1 to 4, we see vigilance against sin. In, in verses 5 and 6, we see the power of faith. And then in verses 7 to 10, we see faithfulness in our duties. And as, as scholars have, have, and theologians have, have tried to, to grapple with, with these, these verses, this, this first part here of, of Luke 17, they're there, there's some question as to, as to how they all fit together. And some of them feel that, that, that Luke has just taken some random sayings of Jesus and just stuck them here. I actually don't believe that. I, I believe that, that these three commands, the command to vigilance against sin, the, the command to exercise the power of faith and to, to faithfully perform our duties, that these three actually fit together, that they actually belong together, and they belong together right here. This is part of this larger teaching section that Jesus began back in chapter 15. See if you can follow the logic with me. First, Jesus warns about the, the, the danger of sin and the, the need to, to rebuke a sinner and then to forgive the sinner who repents even if they sin against you repeatedly, even if they sin against you seven times in one day. And the discovery of this need to, to forgive so graciously leads the disciples to an awareness of their need for faith, to which Jesus responds by revealing the power of true faith. And that this, in turn, reminds the disciples of the fact that, that they're doing these things does not make God owe them anything. That it's, it's all by grace. And that whatever they do, they're, they're just doing their duty. We must do all of these things, but we can do none of them apart from God's empowerment and the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. So first of all, vigilance against sin, verses 1 to 4. 
Again, the Pharisees have been soundly rebuked by Jesus. Remember that the, the, the rich man in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus is them. They're the ones who Jesus is saying are actually in hell, though they claim to be the teachers of righteousness. Jesus now turns to speak to his disciples. But again, no doubt that the Pharisees, at least in part, are still in view here. And Jesus warns, he says, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. Temptations describe traps, traps that make people stumble. And the, the people who are in view here are, are believers, especially, un, especially young believers. The, the parallel in, in Mark 9, 42 reveals, reveals this, that whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. Okay, so, so the, the little ones refers to, to young believers mostly. Now, un, unbelievers can tempt us. Right? Un- unbelievers are clearly a form of temptation. Matthew 18, 5-7 to is, is similar. But there the temptation comes from the world. Now you've probably experienced this, but I- I've had well-meaning people. My old boss, for example, telling me that, that essentially she said, You're, you take your religion too seriously. You need to diversify. You need to, to expand your horizons and, and have other interests. Now, now, in doing this, she wasn't trying to be mean. She was, she was well-intentioned. But, but she was woefully misguided. You know, I've had, I've had Christians, professing Christians, say pretty much the same thing to me. You should take faith too seriously. You need to lighten up a little bit. Well, the Marian martyrs were were pretty serious about their religion as they gave up their lives being being burned at the stake for their willingness to receive Roman Catholic Mass. It was a far worse fate for those who claimed to be believers but succumbed to the temptation and denied the faith. We need to realize that sometimes the greatest temptation to sin comes from within. And yes, we have to acknowledge it comes from within our own hearts, from our flesh, but here I'm talking about other professing believers. Because when an unbeliever tries to entice you into sin, you're more likely to have your guard up, aren't you? Because you expect that sort of thing from an unbeliever. But when someone from within the visible church tempts you, you're, you're going to be more vulnerable, especially as, unbel- as a young believer. Because, because you consider them safe. You consider them to be a brother or a sister in the Lord. And their arguments might even sound plausible. In fact, they might even use scripture. Now, I've known many unmarried couples where one of them, and it's usually the, the, the guy, works to compromise the other physically in their relationship. I've seen Christian parties that didn't look a whole lot different from that which you'd find in the world. I know Christians whose whose choice of entertainment would make a worldling blush. People who promote such things, they're a danger. They're a danger to themselves, and they're especially a danger to to those who are new in the faith. 
So then those who, who claim to be Christians, even well-meaning ones, can unwittingly be used by Satan, the master tempter, to lead Christians into hedonism, antinomianism, legalism, Phariseeism. You don't even know what all those are at this point, but, but a whole bunch of isms that, that are a corruption a biblical doctrine and the gospel of Jesus Christ. They can make shipwreck of your faith. And false teachers in this are especially dangerous. The New Testament contains many warnings against these influences. Here's just one example. 2 Peter 2, 1-3. You can turn with me there if you like. 2 Peter 2, 1-3. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because, and because of them the way of the truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. The condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. You need to be grounded in the word of God so that when, you, so that when these people come to you with their error, you can, you can see them coming from a mile away. You say, that's not what my Bible says. But those who are new Christians are particularly vulnerable to these assaults that are really from the enemy. Temptations are sure to come. The world, the flesh, and the devil are actively seeking to corrupt you and will continue to do so until the Lord returns or comes to take you home. Again, new believers are more vulnerable, especially this teaching, but we all of us all need to be on guard, vigilant against these influences. If you fall into their trap, you have no one to blame but yourself. You need to acknowledge that they are putting you in grave danger. We need to realize that theirs is actually the greater danger. The, the, the tempter is actually in worse danger than the one who's being tempted. In the second half of, of, of this verse, Jesus says, Woe to the one through whom they come. Again, this is another pronunciation of woe. We, we saw several of these in, back in Luke chapter 6. Woe is onomatopoeic. It's, it's, it's a word that, that sounds like what it's describing, like the word slam sounds like the slamming of a door. Woe is the cry of pain and, and of pity for the, the misfortunate, for the misfortune that awaits someone in a certain condition. And here, the person who leads someone else into temptation, especially a young Christian. Jesus says in verse 2 that it would be better for them to have a millstone hung around his neck as he were cast into the sea than to cause one of these little ones to sin. It's a graphic picture. A millstone is a heavy stone used to grind wheat, to grind grain. And if a millstone were to, to be hung around your neck, you'd be, you'd be drugged straight to the bottom of the ocean. And I checked that the Mediterranean Sea is, is almost 6,000 feet deep. I'm really not sure which would come first. Death by drowning? Or the water pressure that would squeeze your body into mush? Death would certainly come. and It would be a horrific 
death. And Jesus says that their fate, the fate of the tempter is even worse than that. Even such a gruesome fate pales in comparison to what awaits such a tempter. And again, by, by calling them little ones, the ones who are being tempted, Jesus is saying that the disciples need to be cared for in the way that a, a parent cares for a child. That the new believer especially needs to be protected. They need to be taught in the, the foundations of the faith. They need to be discipled. This is precisely what Jesus is doing with his disciples here. He's, he's discipling his disciples. He's discipling the disciples so they'll be able to disciple others, who'll be able to disciple others, who'll be able to disciple others all the way until you and me. Jesus is caring for them. He's protecting them. He's, he's teaching them. He's warning about the danger, again, especially the danger of the Pharisees. The danger of their doctrine and example, but it's the Pharisees who are actually in the graver danger. So then Jesus says in verse 3, pay attention to yourselves. Pay attention. Be vigilant. Be vigilant to, sure, to ensure that you are not tempted and be vigilant to ensure that you are not the tempter. Be vigilant to, to protect the, the Christian community from sin. Maybe even from your own sin. Don't be like the Jews that were, were charged by, by Paul in Romans 2.24 that the name of God is blasphemed uh, among the heathens because of you, as we just saw in 2 Peter chapter, chapter 2. People are watching. They're watching your example. They're listening to your words. So watch your tongue. Watch your conduct. Watch your heart from which all of these things flow. Give no occasion for stumbling, no occasion for offense. And when you fail, as you will, confess and ask forgiveness. And that leads us to the next way that we need to be vigilant to protect the Christian community against sin. Jesus tells us how to deal with sin in others. When a brother or sister sins, you have personal responsibility towards the Lord and towards them. Jesus says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. Now, this isn't sticking your nose in somebody else's business. This is your business. This is your business because their sin impacts you and their sin impacts the whole community. Not just, when, not just when it's actually committed directly against you. Their sin impacts you even if it, doesn't, even if it wasn't against you personally. You have a responsibility to rebuke them. Sin in the camp will defile the camp. It will, it will affect others. So it is your business. And when your brother or sister sins, you, you don't give them the cold shoulder. You don't sweep it under the rug. But neither do you talk to others about it. The first two people that you should talk to about it, and very likely even the only two people you should talk to about it, are the Lord and the person who has sinned against, against you or sinned in general. 
First, you, you pray to the Lord and then you rebuke them. You need to pray for yourself. You need, you need to pray for them. This is not a matter of, of getting mad at them. This is not calling them out. This isn't motivated by, by personal offense, but God's glory, their good, and the protection of the church community. And so it means, it means talking to them, talking to them humbly, conscious of the fact that very likely one day you are going to be the one who's on the receiving end of, of such a rebuke. Because you're a sinner too. So you go to them lovingly, gently, but firmly and clearly. And again, you can't do any of these things without praying first. Praying for your own heart and praying for their repentance. But your responsibility doesn't end with the rebuke. Now, Jesus goes into length, we'll talk about it in a moment, but in Matthew 18, about the, the steps of church discipline. But here you have a responsibility. If, if the person repents, forgive him. Forgive him. To, to forgive means to put away their sin, to, to not hold it against them. Forgiveness is, is letting it go and and forsaking the right to bring it up with them and even forsaking the right to think about it anymore. That's what forgiveness is. There's a transaction that takes place. When, when I forgive somebody, when you forgive somebody, what you're really saying is that, is that it's gone. And, and even if it comes to my mind, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to strive by God's grace to put it out of my mind. I, I've let go of the right. I've put the sin away. It is no longer standing between us. So it's then, it's then re- receiving the person as though they'd never committed the sin at all. And you see why this is also vitally important for, for Christian community. Because if, if we're going around with, with, with a shopping list of all the things that everybody else has done or that we think they've done, that, that destroys community. It destroys it. And I spoke at length on this during our series in the model prayer, the, the, the pattern prayer from the Sermon on the Mount, where, where Jesus teaches us to pray, forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. When you have experienced the glorious blessing of God's forgiveness, you are eager to extend that forgiveness to others. And so when you extend someone, extend forgiveness to someone as someone who's been has been been forgiven by God, you are forgiving them not out of your own forgiveness, but out of the riches, the incalculable riches of forgiveness you've received in Christ as an object of his grace. But if you will not forgive, if you're stubbornly refusing to to forgive someone, you need to question whether you've truly experienced the forgiveness of God. Forgiven people are forgiving people. Unforgiving people are unforgiven people. Think, wow, God forgive. Even that. Yes. Yes, you do. In verse 4, Jesus raises the bar. He says, if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must Forgive him. Seven times a day. This is hard. Some would even say it's impossible. 
In Matthew 18, when, when Jesus again discusses the, the subject of church discipline, the, the, the disciples are, are troubled, not by church discipline, but by the command to forgive. So Peter comes to Jesus after teaching on this, and he says, how many times do we need to forgive? As many as seven times? He's not talking about seven times in one day. He's talking about seven times, period. Jesus replies, not seven times, but 77 times. And some translations say seven time, 70 times, seven times. 490 times. Now that doesn't mean that on the 491st time, you, you say, that's it, we're done. No, you continue to offer forgiveness. Now, if somebody sins against you in the same way, seven times in one day, there would probably be a place for some biblical counseling for, for them and for you. But nonetheless, you still need to forgive them. Brother, sister, as Sinclair Ferguson reminds us, you and I have sinned against the Lord not just seven times a day, not even 700 times a day, but, but 7,000 times a day, and really infinitely, you've sinned against the Lord. And he's forgiven all of that. He's forgiven you all of that through the substitutionary death of Christ as he poured out his wrath on his son in your place. That's the depths of the riches of the forgiveness that you have received in Christ. So as a forgiven person, forgive, forgive. A healthy Christian community needs you and me to go to one another and lovingly rebuke one another. It also needs you and me to, to forgive one another. Because sin, if not confronted, will spread through the church and destroy it from the inside out. Soul unforgiveness. You need to be vigilant to rebuke sin and vigilant to forgive sin. Before moving down to Louisville for my studies, I, uh, there's a church that I was thinking about attending and, and I, I, I spoke to the pastor on the phone and, and I had two, two important questions for him. One was related to, um, to, to visit pastoral visitation and the other was, was to, to that of church discipline and, and how the church practiced church discipline because one of the marks of a healthy church is the church that is willing to practice church discipline. And I'd experienced an absence, a complete lack of, of church discipline. I experienced a, a heavy-handed, cultish form of church discipline. I wanted to know the church's philosophy and how biblical it was. But I wasn't prepared for the pastor's answer. He said that the vast majority of, of church discipline, the elders in the church don't even know about. He said that in most cases of church discipline, that, that what happens is that, that when an individual sins or sins against another member of the church, that what happens is they'll, they'll just go to that person. That they'll prayerfully and humbly go and they'll, they'll talk to that person about their sin and the person will repent and it's done. And nobody in the church else in the church even knows about it. The other members of the church, the elders, nobody knows about it because it's dealt with at that first level. And that's what it, it means to be functioning as a, a part of what it means to be functioning as a healthy church. Well, as I said a moment ago, that, that some would say this is impossible. You can't forgive in the way that Jesus is commanding you to do. 
It is impossible. The whole thing is impossible. You can't rebuke like Jesus commands you to, and you can't forgive like Jesus commands you to either. And similarly, you, you, can't, you can't be vigilant against being tempted and vigilant against tempting others like, like Jesus is commanding to you, apart from God's grace. The only way to begin to do any of this is by God's grace. The apostles recognize this. So they say to the Lord, increase our faith. Increase our faith. So then in verses 5 and 6, Jesus now goes on to discuss the power of faith. Again, the command for this kind of forgiveness leads Jesus here to an awareness of their lack of faith. You need Faith to forgive. And again, you can't do you can't do it. You can't do any of it without the Lord's help. So in one sense, asking for more faith is a good thing to ask. It's, it's good. You, you can make this a, a regular part of, of your prayer life to, to ask God for more faith. There are indeed degrees of faith. The scriptures speak of, of little faith and great faith, faith or weak faith and strong faith. It's good to pray for more faith. But that's not the problem here. These men have faith. Look at the beginning of of chapter 5. Luke is very specific as to who he is speaking of. Are we speaking to? These are disciples. These are apostles. So remember, we have the the, the larger group of disciples who are following Jesus. This is the core. These are the core of those who are following Jesus. And discounting Judas, of course, these men have faith. They already have faith. And so what the apostles need is is not more faith, but to remember the object of their faith. But it's not just apostles. All true disciples have faith. All Christians have faith. Turn with me for a moment, please, to Hebrews chapter 11. I'm sure you know it well. Hebrews, this is the, the, the Hebrews Hall of Faith. In, in verse 1, the writer says that now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And, and this is often described as the, the definition of faith. But I think Howell Jones is, is right in his commentary in Hebrews that we looked at in our men's and, and women's studies some time ago. That, that Hebrews 11.1 1 is better seen as a description of faith a description of faith that suits the need being addressed in this particular context. So then, then faith in the context of Hebrews 11 is intellectual assent. So agreeing to and then trust in the objective truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what faith is in this context. So in other words, faith is, is belief and, and reliance on the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ for salvation. Faith is the root and ground of our salvation. In Hebrews eleven six, And without faith is it impossible to please him, for everyone who would draw near to God must believe he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So by faith we come to Christ and are saved. And all disciples of Christ, not just the apostles, all Christians have this faith. Scottish divine John Macduff 
Well, let me not, not look inwardly on myself where there is everything to sink me in despondency and dismay. But let me look to the undivided, rather with the, with the undivided and unwavering eye of faith to your bleeding sacrifice. I rejoice to think of the many robes in the church triumphant your blood has already made white. I rejoice to know that the same blood is free as ever. The same same invitation is addressed as ever. The same promise. And the promiser remains faithful as ever. Him who comes to me, I will no wise cast out. So then faith, in a sense, is, the, is the, the hand by which the soul lays hold of Jesus Christ and is united with him and is saved. Again, all Christians have this faith. You have this faith if you are a Christian. So in this, in this section here, Jesus is actually correcting the apostles' thinking. Again, he's saying that they have faith, but they need to remember the object of their faith and what he can do. Remember the calming of the sea in, in Luke chapter 8, where, where after Jesus, in the midst of the storm, and the disciples were, were panicking, Jesus asked them, where is your faith? And then in Luke 12, he exhorted the disciples to, to faith so that they would no longer be anxious, but to trust in the Lord and, and to acknowledge him before men and to trust the Lord to provide for their needs. They need to remember that faith, even little faith, connects them to a big God. A very big God. So even little faith trusts in a faithful God. So then Jesus gives them the illustration in verse 6. If you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Now the mustard seed is, is one of the smallest seeds in that region. He's talking about tiny seeds, tiny faith. And even that kind of faith would be able to command a, a, a mulberry tree to be uprooted and transplanted in the ocean. Have you ever tried to dig up the roots of an established tree? It is a lot of work. And the mulberry tree that's in view here had a root system that it was so strong and, and so, so well-developed that it was thought to be able to live for 600 years. This is a very well-rooted tree. But Jesus isn't telling his disciples to dig up trees here. Transplanting a tree in the sea is, is akin to a, a camel going through the eyes of a needle. It's humanly impossible. So Jesus wants the disciples to remember that their faith is rooted in a God who can do the seemingly impossible. Their faith is rooted in a God who is able to do the seemingly impossible. Jesus is essentially saying that God can do a lot with a little trust in him. It's not the, the quantity of faith that matters, but the object of faith that's important. Joel Green says that faith is not so much a, a possession, but a disposition. Faith leads to faithful behavior. Faith, lack of faith, leads to anxiety and fear. So in other words, he's, he's saying that, that faith looks at God 
and it interprets everything in light of who God is. Small faith in a big God enables weak people to do mighty things. Small faith in a big God enables weak people to do mighty things. Even to be vigilant against sin. Even the sin of unforgiveness. You need faith. Brothers and sisters, you already have it. You already have it. You can do your duty by faith. So finally then, faithfulness in our duties in verses 7 to 10. When you do your duty, there's actually an attendant danger. When you you begin to see yourself vigilant in your fight against sin, when, when you go and talk to someone about their sin and they repent, when somebody asks you for forgiveness, even, even for something big, and you forgive them, when you begin to see yourself consciously dependent on God, something subtle and sinful can slither in and shift your focus to self. It's very subtle. You often don't recognize it until it has its hooks well and truly in you. You forget that it's all of faith. You forget that, that God is the one who did it, and, and he did it in He did it in you and through you, and and then you begin to get proud. The faithful may be tempted to pride. and You begin to work in your own strength. You, You think you're serving God, but you're really serving self. And you can see these things in others. You you can see self-righteousness and and self-reliance and and selfishness in others, but but so often you and I are blinded to to it in ourselves. Again, let's consider the Pharisees. They they weren't the paragons of virtue that they considered themselves to be. They were self-righteous. They they tried to earn their righteousness by works. They were self-reliant. They had no concept of the ability to to, to do the things that God commanded through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. They were selfish. They, they did, they, they served themselves under the guise of serving God. But it's not just the Pharisees. Disciples are more than capable of self-righteousness, self-reliance, and selfishness. You and I are, are more than capable of these things. So Jesus tells a parable here to reveal the attitude that a disciple should have when serving God. And Jesus here uses a picture from slavery. This is an institution that was very familiar to people in the first century, ancient Near East. But remember, this is quite different from from the slavery that took place in the, the 17th to the 19th centuries. Jesus asked, if any of you who has a slave who finishes working in the field and then comes back to the house... Will you let your your slave sit down and relax while you prepare the meal for him? The point here is, of course not. Instead, the slave is going to come back to the house, change, and then serve his master's dinner. And only then, after he's done these things, will the slave sit down himself to eat. Then the subsequent question, verse 9. Does the master thank the servant for merely doing what he was commanded to do? 
And perhaps it'd be, it'd be helpful to think about this from, from the context of your own employment. Does your boss come to you at the end of the day and say to you, thank you for fixing that. Thank you for building that. Thank you for filing that. Now your boss might thank you, but he certainly doesn't have to thank you. He, he's not beholden to thank you. You're getting paid for your work. But, but the issue here is even so much politely saying thank you, but indebtedness. Your boss doesn't owe you anything when you simply do your job. How much less does a master owe his slave anything when the slave simply does what he's told? So then you also, Jesus concludes in verse 10, you also, when you've done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We've only done what's our duty. what was our duty. Brothers and sisters, you are slaves of God. But again, don't let modern sensitivities color your understanding of that word. Try to think of it from the perspective of Jesus' first hearers. So this is how Paul describes himself in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, 1-4. This is how one should regard us as servants. It's actually slaves or bond servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they should be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. And so the Apostle Paul then is, is humble before God, knowing that, that God will judge him for his faithfulness, for the discharge of his duties. Again, brother and sister, you are slaves. You're God's slave. And as God's slave, you're commanded, you're responsible to serve him faithfully and dutifully in all of life. God's moral law is not multiple choice. You have to obey him in all things. God requires perfection. Matthew 5.48, Therefore you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. We realize again that you and I are far from perfect. Even though by God's grace we're, we're, not, we're not engaging in, 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 in bondage to the sins that, that once controlled our lives, we're still very far from perfect when we consider God's moral and righteous standard. All of your righteousness and mine is like filthy rags, Isaiah 64, 6. We have no righteousness of our own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith, Philippians 3.9. The only righteousness that you and I have is the imputed righteousness of Christ, the righteousness of the, the perfect life of the incarnate Son of God, credited to our account. His righteousness credited to us. That is the only righteousness that you and I have. So then your obedience doesn't mean that God owes you anything. Your best service does not leave God indebted to you in, in one iota. In fact, when you begin to understand that, that all of your good works are done ultimately by God, it actually increases your indebtedness to Him. I'm reminded of the, the famous quote by, by Augustine. 
Give what you command, command what you will. You order us to practice continence. Now, continence refers more broadly to, to self-control, and especially from abs- from, uh, to abstinence from immorality. So Augustine is acknowledging that God commands us according to his moral law, but that obedience to moral, God's moral law can only come from God's power at work in us. Now, if you know anything about the life of Augustine, you know that he wasn't always known for his morality. Quite the opposite. You really need to read his, his, bio, his autobiography, Confessions, in which he talks about the fact that he was wantonly immoral. He had several mistresses. And he even writes of having been convicted for his immorality and having the audacity to pray, grant me chastity and continence, but not yet. He acknowledges that these are things that God wants him to do, but he says, I don't want those things yet. He explains, for I was afraid lest God should hear, hear me too soon and too soon cure me of my disease of lust, which I desire to have satisfied rather than extinguished. He wanted his lust more than he wanted God. But the Lord's sovereign grace prevailed and saved Augustine out of his life of immorality. And there's a story of, of, of Augustine later in life running into a, a former mistress on the street. And when he recognized her, he, he quickly turned to walk away. But she recognized him as well and called out, Augustine, it is I. And Augustine, continuing to retreat from her, replied, Yes, but it is not I. By the grace of God, Augustine was no longer what he once was. He'd been transformed through the renewing work of the Holy Spirit. By God's grace and the Spirit's power, his heart was changed and it caused him to avoid the sin, to flee from the sin that he once loved. It caused him to to flee to the God that he had once rejected. Again, if you know anything about Augustine, you you know that that he he, he was used powerfully by God to combat heresy in the church and to reinforce sound biblical doctrine. Augustine is one of the the most notable Christians from the last 2,000 years. And here you can see God's work to change the heart of a sinner and to enable him to live a life for the glory of God. Again, you can, you can see this in the lives of many saints throughout church history. And now we're coming back to where we started. Again, we're talking about God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. You can see this in the life of the Apostle Paul, who, though he's still named Saul in Acts chapter 7 and was approving of the, the martyrdom of Stephen, and in Acts chapter 9, on the road to Damascus, still breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, going to the high priest and asking for letters to the synagogues in Damascus that we could find any Christians, men and women, and bring them bound in chains back to Jerusalem. But as he was, was on his way to Jerusalem, you, you know the story. The Lord Jesus appeared to him in a bright light, and Saul fell to the ground. And the Lord said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
He replied, who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what to do. And so Saul continued to Damascus, but no longer as a Pharisee, completely committed to the destruction of the church. He was now an apostle, completely committed to the building of the church. The apostle Paul then, see this in the book of Acts, traveled throughout the region, preaching the gospel and planting churches. Paul wrote more books of the Bible than any other man, almost half the books of the New Testament. Paul, the Pharisee who became an apostle, he proclaims in 1 Corinthians 15.10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me is not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that, is, that was in me. Again, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Similarly, in Colossians 1, 20 and 29, he says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Hear this, for this I toil, starting with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. He toiled, he struggled with all the energy that God worked in him. But this is not just true of, of men like, like Augustine and the Apostle Paul. You can see this played out in the lives of many here among us this morning. You have the same faith as Augustine and the Apostle Paul. You have the same faith. You have the same God. The same Spirit dwells in you. Ephesians 1, 19-20. This is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe. That according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in heavenly places. Brothers and sisters, the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead dwells in you. You are able to do the duties that God has commanded you to do by faith, tapped in to the, to the power of the omnipotent God. So what duty would the Lord have you do for him? What sin does he want you to overcome? What person does he want you to forgive? And what areas does he want you to grow? What, what personal spiritual disciplines does he want you to practice? Who, who does he want you to share the gospel with? If you do these things, in your, or try to do these things in your own strength, you're going to fall flat on your face. But if by faith you would trust yourself to the omnipotent God, Again, the same God who transformed the life of Augustine, the same God who transformed the life of the Apostle Paul, the same God who's transforming the lives of your brothers and sisters here in this church family. You will see the work of God in your life. You will see the way that, that he is, is transforming you through his sovereign grace to enable you to live for his glory. Paul called himself a slave of Christ in 1 Corinthians 4, 1-4. And as a slave of Christ, he did not expect thanks from God. But he continues in verse 5. That when the Lord comes and discloses the purposes of the heart, each one will receive his commendation from God. God does not owe you anything. God has already given you, if you're a Christian, God has already given you the infinite riches of Jesus Christ. Made you a co-heir with him. 
when I think about my life, and I think about my failures, I think about the ways that I'm woefully inadequate. I'd be inclined to say that each one will, will receive his condemnation from God. But Paul doesn't say that. He says commendation. Commendation. Because you'll be commended by God's grace. Jesus essentially says the same thing in the parable of the ten minus in, in Luke 19.17. When the master returns, he'll, he'll say to the one who is faithful, well done, good servant. Well done, good servant. Don't you want to hear those words from the Lord Jesus Christ? If you were in Christ, you will hear those words by God's grace. When you hear these words, you're immediately, immediately going to fall on your knees and cast your crown before him and give him the glory. Acknowledging that it was, it was he, he was the one who did it. When, when you look back on your life, you will see that, that it was God indeed who was at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Philippians 2.13 But I trust you'll begin to see this even now as you look at life through the eyes of faith in the faithful God. Let's pray together. Our gracious and merciful God, we praise you for the riches of the forgiveness that we have received through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. We praise you, Lord, for the work of your Holy Spirit transforming us into the image of Christ for the glory of your name. We praise you that we have been predestined not just for salvation, but for sanctification. Continue to do your work in us. Make us look more like Jesus. Help us, Lord, to look to you with the eyes of faith and to look at life with our eyes fixed firmly on you. That we may know your power at work in us that your saving grace might be on display, your transforming grace might bring glory to your name. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.